Think about a time when you felt like you didn't belong. Now, for some of us, that might have been a feeling. For others of us, you might have felt like you didn't belong because there was a group of people who wanted you to feel like you didn't belong. You remember a time? I don't know how old a person is when they uh, figure out uh, whether they belong or not. But I remember this very vividly when I was in fifth grade. Now, in our fifth grade class, we had desks somewhat like this, and uh, I don't know what the educational philosophy was back then in the dark ages when I went to school, but uh, the idea that they had then was you didn't set your students in rows with their desks like this. What you did is you allowed the students to push their desks together in kind of a social group, and so a student could measure if they belonged or how popular they were by whose desk they had pushed up against. I, I felt pretty good because in fifth grade I felt pretty popular. And, and I would say half of the desk in the whole class were connected to my desk. And then the teacher. I remember her name to this day. Mrs. Ingebretson. She had an idea. She thought, I want my students to feel like a, what it feels like to live in India. So she decided to divide the whole class up by the caste system. Are you aware in India they have these social rankings called castes? And you have everything from the lowest of castes to the highest of class. Anyone remember what the lowest class is called? The untouchables. I've always been a lucky guy. And when we had the drawing for which caste you were to be in, guess what I drew? The untouchables. And most of my friends got into the higher castes, and uh, a few of them even were in the highest caste, the, the Brahmins. And, and so Mrs. Ingebretson divided us up by caste. And if you were an untouchable, you had to take your back to desk and move to the corner and face the wall. And if you were a Brahmin, you got to be right up front by the teacher. And they had privileges we didn't have. And in the lunchroom, you couldn't sit at the same table with each other. And at recess, you couldn't play with each other. And, and I don't know how long this experiment went on. It felt like months. And I went from being in to being out. I feel like it. what it meant to not belong. You know, I have to tell you that even thinking back on that incident, though it was decades ago, I still feel that. I still don't like Mrs. Ingebretson because of it. <laughs> and it wasn't long after that. You have to understand, I have always loved basketball. Even when I was a little kid, we had a basketball uh, hoop up over our garage. I don't know if any of you had a house like that. When I was a little kid, I used to, we live on the shore, not far off the shore of Lake Michigan. We get that same kind of lake effect snow you guys get in this area. And, and I used to shovel the drive even in the middle of the winter and, and get ready to shoot some baskets. And even when I was so small, I couldn't only shoot overhand. I'd even shoot underhand and anything to play basketball. And actually, uh, in, in elementary school, I was, okay, I wasn't a star. I made the team. Okay, there were only eight boys in the class. Two of them didn't like basketball. I was a very good sixth man, I want you to know. I, I made the team, but 
junior high, there were 26 boys who wanted to play basketball. I was number 24. I didn't get out of the court much. When I got to the 8th grade, I didn't make the team. You know, I imagine the students come back to uh, college. If some of them are returning, they'll wonder about you know, is that same network there, that group I still belong to, and new students come in there, I'm definitely thinking, will I belong? And whether or not you belong is important when it comes to school, it's important when it comes to sports. I think it's really important when it comes to faith. I serve in Grand Rapids, Michigan known as a very religious community, home to all those bookstores like Baker and Kriegel and Zondervan, and it has this wonderful heritage. And when our church started in 1979, I felt called to go to this community to help start the church, but I wasn't very familiar with the community, so I knocked on doors and I would interview people, and, I, and if they had a church home, I'd just thank them for the time, ask them to pray for us, and if they didn't have a church home, I would uh, say, well, why not? And we heard some of the usual reasons. It's boring. Uh, all they talk about is money. It's not related to my life. But I remember the most common reason. I felt like if I go to church, the people who are already there won't welcome me. And a picture began to develop of a community where if you were in religiously, you were really in. But if you were out, for whatever reason, you were really out. And that's exactly the situation in which we find Jesus today. And I'd like to direct your attention back to Luke chapter 5, our, our first reading and Jesus is gathered. It's a festive occasion. One of his newly minted recruits, Levi, Matthew, is hosting a party. And there's all kinds of people who are gathered at this party. But there's a couple of verses I want to dive deeper on. Because in verse 29 it says, When Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Let me stop there for a moment. In the Greek, that word eating with him is the idea reclined at the table. Hold that word a minute, table. In fact, that very phrase, reclined at the table, was used in the other passage we read today, Luke chapter 7. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But the other little word I want you to notice with me is but the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect. Now let's put those two words together. Table, sect. Many historians believe that the Pharisees were a table fellowship sect. Which meant who ate at their table determined who was in and who was out. Now, you may remember these Pharisees, these religious power brokers, they had strong separatist tendencies. 
They like to distinguish themselves with others, particularly at mealtimes, because after all, there was a whole list of foods that were approved and were not approved. There were certain rituals of cleanliness, certain rites that they had to follow. And so they tended to practice hospitality only with each other and stay away from other people. This uh, desk being here reminds me that in fifth grade, boys and girls didn't often have their desks together. Because boys were afraid of getting something from girls. Anybody know what it was? Cooties. And the Pharisees had a similar philosophy when it came to your religious life. I mean, who you hang out with might give you spiritual cooties. And so they tended to be very separatist from people who didn't have the same religious habits they had. And as I thought about this table fellowship sect, I thought, you know, the students here at Houghton, every meal will eat around tables. And who's at the table and who's not at the table will say something about their relationships. More and more, we relate online and we can form our own circles and we have certain people who are proved as friends and certain people who aren't. And in a high-tech sort of way, we include and we exclude. Well, the Pharisees weren't nearly that high-tech, but... They defined themselves and their relationships by who they excluded. And they had a list. Women, they weren't welcome at the table. Samaritans, Gentiles, individuals with criminal records, anyone who was disabled or sick, tax collectors, Anyone considered sinners. It's also uh, interesting, they had certain occupations that weren't welcome. Some of these I understand, some of them I don't. For instance, if you were a camel driver, you were not welcome. If you ever been around a camel, you can understand it. They're disgusting animals. I mean, I wouldn't want a camel driver either. I can understand that one. But, but how about this one? Tailors, barbers, butchers. I, I can understand that one, uh, you know, they're handling meat, dead animals, obviously taboo. Physicians, that was an interesting one, so respected as a profession in our culture. In that culture, of course, they dealt with people who were ill and disabled, and that was on the excluded list. So when you boiled it all down, the only people who qualified were healthy males of pure Hebrew ancestry who held respectable jobs and followed their religious customs, according to Marcus Ford. So no wonder they have a question for Jesus. Well, actually, for his disciples. Didn't seem to have enough nerve to ask Jesus directly. So, you know, when you have an issue, sometimes you don't go direct to the source. You talk about it with other people. And they said, verse 30, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You're supposed to be religious. You're a rabbi. Why are these people welcomed at the table. Why don't you exclude people like us who are more spiritual? Like we exclude people. It got me thinking about different kinds of exclusion. Of course, there's race-based exclusion when we exclude people based on their race. In our community, on the southeast side, the predominant historical social grouping is Dutch. 
And I know this isn't very good English, but there is a saying, even some have put it on the bumper stickers of their cars, if you aren't Dutch, they say, if you ain't Dutch. You want to know how this ends? Yeah, I see it back there. You ain't much. You ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I think some people really believe it. There's culture-based exclusion. You know we have differences in our languages, our food, our rituals, our dress. This says if you don't speak our language, if you don't like our food, if you don't worship like us, if you don't dress like us, you're not welcome. There's there's economic-based exclusion where we exclude people who are rich or we exclude people who are poor or just different from us economically. There's disability-based exclusion. One of the things I miss about being home this morning, though I'm delighted to be with you, is the prayer time that I have with my prayer partners. One of my prayer partners is named TJ. And TJ has a disability that has taken away almost all of his bodily functions. He has a really amazing wheelchair. And in addition to his mobility being very limited, he also is very limited in his speech. And many mornings when he prays for me, I only understand two words, my name, Wayne, and amen. But there is something going on when he prays. I remember when he became a member and we had our members lined up and then we we asked TJ to pray for our church and those becoming members. And I'm sure our congregation didn't understand much more than two words, but when he was done and people raised their heads, you could see some moisture on cheeks because of the way the prayer touched his life. And When we ask TJ, why did you want to join the church? He says, because you not only allow me to be a member, have a name on the list, but you allow me to minister, to serve as well. TJ is one of the greeters at our door, and I'm sure the first time a guest comes and sees a greeter who can't shake their hand and can't fully and clearly greet them, they wonder about this. but, But for him and for us, it's become a treasured place of service. Do we exclude people based on their disabilities? But... Maybe the most potent and devastating form of exclusion is spiritual-based exclusion. When someone maybe has the scarlet letter when they've committed what may be the unpardonable sin, and the list varies depending on which group you belong to, and, and they're not welcomed. This Jesus is different. He radically relates to others. In fact, this morning we're talking about how his radical relationships are radical because they have a further reach. He includes people that others don't include. And tonight we're going to talk about the fact that his relationships were radical because they had a depth that other people didn't tend to go to. And where the other religious power brokers kind of define themselves and their relationships based on exclusion, Jesus included others. Now, if you look at verse 31, when Jesus answers them, he doesn't disagree with their assessment. He doesn't say, hey, these are really good people. That's not what Jesus says. But what he does say is, if it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. You see, he agrees with them in their assessment. He just doesn't stop there. He goes on to the treatment. I think that's really ultimately the difference between legalism and grace. Legalism is where we assess people. Grace, we don't close our eyes. We don't play like sin hasn't happened. That's not grace. 
But grace looks in the face and goes on to talk about the treatment, the, the remedy of redemption that's available. And in verse 32, he seems to echo this because he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying these people don't need to change. I mean, repentance is all about a turnabout. It's about a change. He says, I realize they need to change. I believe Jesus is communicating with his actions that through including people, the love and forgiveness they experience fosters faith. In in fact, in chapter 7, which was read for us today, he's experiencing table fellowship with the Pharisees. Aha, Jesus made it to their table. Simon invited them. But he didn't really fit there because Simon didn't give them all the decent treatments that a fully welcome table guest would have. And they probably didn't want him there because he really viewed them as being part of his group. They, They may have been a little bit intrigued with his celebrity. They may have wanted to trap him, whatever reason. While Jesus is there, this woman comes in and she, a woman, comes up to the table and starts washing Jesus' feet and crying and anointing him. And Simon says, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know. He would know she doesn't belong. Jesus says, I know who she is. Who has the greatest joy? Who feels the love the deepest? It's the person who's been forgiven the most. You see, Jesus didn't have a religious scorecard. He looked for the responsiveness, no matter how great the brokenness, no matter what the history. He looked at the responsiveness to his love and to his message of forgiveness that called repentance. Albert Nolan says it would be impossible to overestimate the impact these meals must have had on the poor and the sinners by showing them that they matter to him as people. He gave them a sense of dignity and he released them from their captivity. His actions, his radical relationships began the transformation process. So I've got a couple questions for you. The first one has to do with exclusion. Who do you tend to exclude? Who does this church tend to exclude? Who does the college tend to exclude? And what makes this tricky is we don't always exclude on purpose. You know, sometimes there's conscious exclusion, like the Pharisees would practice. They would identify people and willingly exclude them. Other times there's this unconscious exclusion, where without even realizing it, we're causing people not to feel welcome. When our church started in 1979, our community was 96% Caucasian. Now, depending on how you slice the demographics, somewhere uh, by age, somewhere between 25 and 50 percent are ethnic minority. One day, a friend of mine, Monroe, who likes to speak the truth to me, even if I don't want to hear it, do you have any friends like that? Came in, big guy, I listened to him, he's big, I listen. He's African-American, he said, when you know what some people in the community call Kentwood Community Church. 
think I'm about to find out. So they call it the White House. Because if you're not white, you're not welcome. You ever have someone say something that just like a knife in the heart? Was I or others purposely excluding? You know, I my daughter who joined our family when she was five is Korean, and I always thought of myself as being in touch with other races and cultures, and then to be confronted in this way, ouch. brings me to the second question. Who am I, or you, personally, or this church, or the college, intentionally including in our relationships? You see, since we've begun this journey, as our church is becoming more diverse, there is a relational richness like we never experienced when we were all alike in so many ways. But I have a lot to learn. I grew up in a pretty monocultural, monoracial setting, and so I have friends. Do you have a friend like this? I call them my safe people to ask my dumb questions. Because sometimes I don't know how to say things, don't know how to act in ways that include others. I have to humble myself and learn so that I can intentionally, and as our staff has become more diverse and as our leadership has become more diverse and as our congregation has become more diverse, I still need to say, are my words, are my action, is my love including others? Now, your issue may not be race at all. It may not be cultural at all. I'm just using that as an illustration to ask you, whether it's disability or economics or race or culture or spiritual history, are you intentionally including others at your table, your circle of relationships? I don't think that's the natural human thing to do. But... The spirit of Jesus is to do so. We need his help. So I'd like to pray about that. Would you bow with me, please? Thank you, God, that you include all who come to you. That your nature is to be a God who has so loved the world that whoever believes... Thank you for the radical relationships of Jesus who welcomed others who felt unwelcome. And that began a transformation process. Thank you that in Christ, ultimately, there is not Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. But there's Christ who is all and who's in all. May the spirit of Jesus Give us a radical reach in our relationships that shows your love to everyone you care about. Helps to each know where that begins in our lives.